donations of any amount can be really important. In 2019, Americans gave $449 billion to charitable organizations. Welcome to season five of the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this season, we're giving our financial health a checkup with some phenomenal women giving us the prescription for financial wellness. We'll speak to experts on how to educate your children about money, how to address debt, and how to save for home ownership. It's a masterclass on understanding and managing your money. Today, I'm speaking with Janice Bowdler, president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, which is the bank's philanthropic center. The COVID-19 pandemic has shifted the way we live and work in so many ways, including how organizations approach charitable giving. Janice and I talk about the community-first model that we use at JPMorgan Chase to deliver financial and other support to organizations around the world. Janice, thank you so much for joining us and our Women on the Move podcast. It's great to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So let's start with your role at JPMorgan Chase. I would love it if you told the listeners what you do. Sure. So I'm the president of the JPMorgan Chase Foundation. And just to give folks a sense of what that means, we program about $350 million annually in charitable giving and low-cost loans in 37 countries around the world. So tell us about how the last year has really reshaped your thinking, if it has, in terms of the foundation's key areas of focus. Did you make any changes or did that really reinforce the current strategy? 2020 has changed everything for all of us. There's no question it's had an incredible impact on our work. Prior to 2020 and for the last seven years that I've been with the firm, we've really been focused on inclusive economic growth. So how do we help vulnerable communities around the world, large focus on communities of color and low-income individuals here in the U.S.? How do we help them share in the prosperity of a growing economy? And then suddenly we're hit with a double crisis of a global pandemic and an economic recession. And so we shifted quickly from a growth mindset to a recovery mindset. The needs of our communities and our nonprofit partners shifted significantly. We went to think about things like basic needs, immediate stability, as opposed to how are you taking advantage of growth in a marketplace. And so we had to put everything on hold, shift our strategy really quickly. We were in touch with a lot of our nonprofit partners to assess what they were seeing and feeling and experiencing and tried to adapt on the fly. And did that involve working with existing partners, just shifting the areas of focus with them or and or taking on entirely new partners? We kept with many of our same partners. Maybe we took on a few new ones. But for the most part, our partners in the U.S. and in countries around the globe, they're already deeply embedded in the most vulnerable communities. So they were in a good place to be able to give us firsthand intelligence on what was actually going on, what were the needs of those communities, and pivot to respond A big part of what we did, rather than shift partners, was to shift the kind of funding that we were giving nonprofits. So we're used to giving very programmatic grants. You know, you're going to serve this many people, and we know the kinds of outcomes that you are going to achieve most of the time, right? But in the middle of the crisis, nobody really knew, and it it was more around 
core support. Just get dollars to nonprofits that are on the front lines of everything from feeding families to making sure that they had what they need to bridge household expenses until the stimulus checks came in. So we tried to be really flexible with them so that they could adapt as needed. And do those needs in the current environment, do you think they've shifted trends in philanthropy? You know, trends you might have been seeing before the pandemic, have they shifted things? And if so, do you think it's a permanent shift? Yeah, I think there are trends that we saw coming that now have really come into the forefront. So let me give you a couple of examples. One would be what we call centering community voice. And what that really means is philanthropy can tend to exist in a bubble. We have dollars, we have prestige, and frankly, we have power compared to vulnerable communities. And so it's easy to sit in our rooms and say, here's what we think the problem is, and here's what we think the solution ought to be. The shift is particularly with a pandemic where things are unfolding and changing in real time is to do deep listening and say, community, you know better than we do. What are you seeing? What are the solutions that you really want to put forward? We've had that mindset for quite some time. If I think about our $100 million investment in Detroit, our mantra going in was no New York solutions to Detroit problems, right? right? We really centered on the listening. But this was a moment where I'd say we had to really put our money where our mouth was. And that meant, you know, maybe funding something a little bit different than we used to, because that's what the community was telling us that they needed. That's one thing that I think is going to accelerate, not just here, but with other philanthropy. Another that I would mention is, as we've seen the deep disparity of the impact of the pandemic, it's laid bare what we already knew, deep inequality facing Black and Brown communities in particular vulnerable communities around the U.S., around the globe. And we see, again, a double hit. Black and brown communities are both more likely to be in frontline jobs where they are more exposed to the health risks of the pandemic and more likely to experience unemployment. So we see these deep disparities that we've known about just really exacerbated and laid bare. What follows is making sure that what we're funding really supports and is built around the most vulnerable. And that's not always the case. It sounds like that would be what philanthropy does, but it hasn't always been the case. So it sort of works in tandem with centering community voice. How do we make sure that as we're rebuilding systems, that we're doing it with an equity mindset and really building for the most vulnerable first? And we know when we do that, that it's going to be better for everybody when you center that vulnerability. So I love how you talked about really embedding in the community and having those community partners drive what we're doing. Can you talk about how the bank works with partners aside from providing funding? What does a partnership look like? How do our staff and teams actually get in there, so to speak, with these partners and think about the needs or do any of the work together on the ground? let me kind of break down how it works. We have as a firm, of course, we have dollars. Everybody always thinks about the dollars, but we also have data and we also have human capital. And when we put all of those things together, and I should say also recently we established the JP Morgan Chase Policy Center. 
So we're able to advocate for policies that make real change on the ground for communities. We bring in data and insights to inform both problem diagnoses and solutions and understand what is effective. We put dollars into nonprofit organizations, and then we will also send in teams used to be that we would send teams in in person, but this year we've been doing that quite a bit virtually to actually work with nonprofits to support their infrastructure. Our teams will go in and do anything from build out back office technology to help them develop marketing plans, help them build out revenue models, things that our talented folks do every day in their day job, but this kind of skill set that nonprofits don't always get access to. And I think that is really our secret sauce is being able to bring all of those things together. One of the favorite things, my favorite things about the bank is in addition to staff coming from your teams or from the areas that are directly making the grants, is that we have employees from around the bank often work with nonprofits as part of a service core model where employees come out of their jobs for, you know, could be a month or so and work full time with those nonprofits. Uh, So it's really special and it's happened around the world in many countries outside the U.S. too. It is really exciting. And employees come from markets all over the world. And so it's an incredible experience for our employees, a tremendous benefit to the nonprofit. So let's go back to something that you mentioned, which is a pandemic has really affected Black and Brown communities significantly. And very recently in October, the firm announced it was going to make a $30 billion incremental mm-hmm investment in these communities across a variety of different areas and sectors. So can you talk about how you're participating in that commitment and some of the things that you're especially working on to really fulfill that five-year commitment? Yeah, first of all, let me say how proud I am of the firm for this $30 billion commitment. I think one of the questions we get right away are like, is that marketing? Is that smoke and mirrors? But it's real. You use the most important word. It's incremental. This is a $30 billion investment above and beyond. And there's even more to it. At some point, I hope you have somebody who's close to that work come on to talk about the ways that we're changing how we're doing business to better reach communities of color. And I think that is just as important as the dollars. And so translating that into my own world and my day job, of that $30 billion, $2 billion is philanthropy. I'm also really proud of that ratio because the vast majority of this is business-led, right? And as philanthropy, you know, we just come in as icing on the top. We are really centering our work in the U.S. around addressing the racial wealth divide. And that is a sharpening of a focus that we've had over the years But by getting tight and more deliberate in addressing the racial wealth divide, it allows us to think about what we're measuring, who we're investing in, and be more explicit about the outcomes that we're going after. So it is a next step iteration from where we've been. We've long been focused on communities of color, but now with this sharp focus on the racial wealth divide specifically, we can get even more targeted. Yes. So I'd love to ask you about the decision-making process that you and your team go through when there's so many worthy causes and areas of need, and I'm sure many organizations you know, coming to us with requests for help. How do you decide who's going to benefit the most from the firm's assistance? You know, What kind of 
guidelines or um, decision-making tools do you use to allocate resources? When starting out, there's always two places to start, particularly for corporate philanthropy or philanthropy in the workplace. One is to think about the core competencies of the firm. So for us, really sticking to places where we have a body of knowledge that contributes to what it is that we're trying to do. And that's really important. Just to give folks a sense, we used to have a much larger presence in early childhood education. Incredibly important area of focus. We as a business don't know much about that area. So as we look to pivot, we started with what are the areas that we really understand? The second is to diagnose the problem and make sure that you really understand what root cause issues are. I think a lot of competitors in this space, I would say, tend to focus on the sort of surface meeting immediate needs, which is important. There are a lot of immediate daily needs in our communities, but we've gone a step deeper to try to get at root causes and really change the systems so that as we evolve or change, there is an infrastructure and a system there that better serves communities. I know systems change can be a little bit wonky. I'm happy to explain that a little bit more. But for now, I'll just say starting with understanding the problem and starting with your core competencies is where you want to begin. Our four focus areas are on jobs and skills, small business, neighborhood development, and financial health. That should not surprise any listeners thinking about who we are as a firm. Those are areas where we're making investments as a business as well. So again, it allows us to bring that core competency over. So is there an example, let's say in one of those strategic pillars where we were helping a nonprofit serve their end clients or communities, but we also help them build some capability so that they were just better at doing what they do? Yeah, I'll give you one example that really stands out for me, and that was the Detroit Land Bank. So when we started working with the Detroit Land Bank, they had really suffered a series of funding blows. And it was a couple of people working on personal laptops in borrowed office space. I mean, they were very small. But at the time, the city of Detroit had 100,000 vacant and abandoned parcels. It was about a quarter of the city's land was in this kind of state. And a land bank, the function is to actually take those parcels, clear title, and position them for more productive use, whether they're going to be for a homeowner or for a small business, for commercial development, whatever it is. So we knew that the land bank was instrumental to a larger strategy to help Detroit get back on its feet, but it was really on the ropes. So we did a couple of things. We gave a five-year grant, so long-term grant. They knew they could plan on having that money come in. It really helped stabilize their finances. And then we had two different service teams go in, one that helped them build out their Salesforce platform and another that helped them actually build out their property maintenance program, right? Like once you bring in all of those parcels, you have to manage them. And they were the largest land bank by a factor, right? Significantly larger than other land banks. So they were having to manage a lot. They are now a robust organization, employs a few dozen people or maybe more. I don't know their latest numbers. I'm really proud of how we came in, helped stabilize and build what needs to be 
an institution that is part of the ongoing efforts in that city. I think that's a great example of taking a long view with a nonprofit can really reap dividends down the line. And that longevity that you're looking for in partners, that seems to be a very important criteria. Can we partner with them for a five-year period or even greater? And what are the institutions that have that capability to be enduring? That's right. And what you're saying too, part of that is assessing and understanding nonprofit leadership. So as part of our focus on addressing the racial wealth divide, we're also looking specifically at diverse-led nonprofits. We know that diverse-led nonprofits are less likely to get the kind of multi-year funding that I just described, and they get smaller grants, which makes it harder for them to grow and stabilize in that way that I just talked about the Detroit Land Bank. So part of our efforts are to have a dedicated focus on diverse-led nonprofits, focus on those long-term grants and capacity building. Again, these are organizations that tend to be closest to the problem. They're also closest to the solution, and it's an investment. We want to invest in them to be there for the long haul to serve their communities. Can you talk about some of the long-term impact that the foundation has had on communities? Absolutely. One program that I would highlight that's had a really tremendous impact is the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund. Now, this is a program that started in Detroit to focus on businesses that were scaling but not yet ready for a traditional bank loan. And we've since grown that program to a total of five cities who've given more than 400 loans with only two defaults. It's been a really successful program working with predominantly women entrepreneurs, many of whom wouldn't have gotten a shot at funding otherwise. And one really good example is a woman named Melissa Butler who founded The Lip Bar in Detroit and I think hit a lot of dead ends. You know, this is one of the things that we hear from women entrepreneurs who are in businesses that target women. Sometimes they're told like, oh, that doesn't really have growth potential. Like really? The beauty industry? Like, of course, there's huge growth potential there. (laughs) I know, right? I know. I feel like I'm personally fueling that industry. Melissa's now selling in Target. She's been incredibly successful. And we were really proud that she got an original loan from Detroit Development Fund in Detroit and has grown to do really successful things from there. And in fact, I'm really proud that more than 50% of our grants have gone to support women. It's really incredible. We know how important women are to our economy and to our communities. It's important that we've got an intentional focus on women through our giving. And I'll say, particularly in this time, we know that the pandemic has hit women particularly hard. We've heard it referred to as the she session, right? Women have been at higher risk of losing their jobs. And so that trend line is going to continue for us. We will continue to have a sharp focus on women going forward. So you have a daughter and I'm curious about how you talk to her about giving. So do you have any tips to share about talking to your children about the importance of giving and philanthropy? Oh, I love that question. Yes. So my daughter is five. Uh, It can be very hard to get her to part ways with her pennies, her very hard earned pennies. But there are a couple of ways that I do this with her. It's really important to me. 
So the first is that we involve her in our own volunteer activities. So this summer, we delivered food to families who were not able to get out because of the pandemic. And so I brought Sienna with me. That was not always fun for her. You know, we were driving around, we sort of throw on a story podcast, and we'd be up and downstairs and kind of taking food to families. But that allowed us to have a conversation about how grateful we should be for the food that we have. And there are some families that don't have that. So then when it came time to, you know, she's trying to do things around the house and earn and we've got her bank, then we're able to talk about, okay, here's what we're going to save. Of course, she's got her eye on the long list of things that she wants to buy with her money. But then I can remind her, you know, mommy sets aside some money to share in our community she has a frame of reference for that because we've talked about it and she's participated. And so mm. that actually then made it a little easier for her to say, yeah, I know there are kids like me that don't have enough to eat. And so I'll give them one of my quarters. I mean, we're talking about really small. We're still in the phase where quarters are more valuable than paper dollars for some reason, but it's <laughs> it works. And I really hope that I'm building both a financial health practice with her, but also empathy for understanding how privileged our family is and how important it is to take care of our community. So let's pivot toward adult contributions, adult views of philanthropy and what individuals can do with their own charitable giving, if that's something that they are able to do. How would someone start and identify the right organizations where they could contribute and make a difference? And when I say contribute, that could be you know anything. It doesn't have to be large sums. It could be just even getting involved in some way. How would you counsel people to get started? First, I'd say there's no place too small to get started. And I think in a time where we're all seeing great need around us, but may also be personally feeling squeezed by loss of income or rising expenses... I think it's important for people to first make sure that they are in a good position themselves, they're in a financial position to make some sort of donation, but then also realize that donations of any amount can be really important. In fact, individual donations are the largest source of charitable giving in the country. In 2019, Americans gave $449 billion to charitable organizations. So even as an individual, you're participating in a larger system of philanthropy. So I think that's important. So if you're thinking about giving, first identifying your own passions. For every individual, there's something that really taps and I think comes from who they are and their own experience. And I really think that that is the most important thing because that's what's going to make it sustained and real and relevant to your family as you're talking to your children about it, you're talking to your partner about why making these gifts are important. Next step, I encourage folks to use a platform like Charity Navigator to actually do a basic check of a nonprofit and make sure that they're reputable and in good financial standing. So that's really important too. There are bad nonprofits out there. And so you should take care to protect yourself and you can go to a platform like Charity Navigator to check that out. And then finally, do a little bit of thinking about how much money do you want to give, but also what can you give in terms of your time or other volunteer activities or maybe even donations. And once you've identified a nonprofit that you can work with, if they don't have it already on their website, just reach out and ask them. Of course, everybody wants dollars, but 
You may have a skill set, a language ability, your time and advice might meet a need that a nonprofit has, and that can be really meaningful as well. So do a little bit of homework there. And then you can think about your own portfolio of giving, how much of your time, how much of your money, how much of your intellectual capital can you contribute to the cause you really care about? I love that. There are many ways to get involved. You mentioned starting with your personal passion. I'm on the board of an organization in New York City called Safe Horizon, which works Mm -hmm. with victims of domestic violence and child abuse and human trafficking. And it's something that is personally a passion to me, but it is a great organization because it actually has ways for younger people to get involved, Mm -hmm. folks that might not have necessarily a lot of money to donate, but they actually get involved in helping to run events and helping to raise money through others. So there are different ways that you can get involved in so many different charitable organizations. So I really encourage folks to do that. Janice, thank you so much for sharing all your advice and also a look into your work, doing such great things on behalf of this firm and for our communities. We really thank you for all the work you do and and thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun, Sam. And thank you for everything that you do at the firm. Your leadership, uh, lifting up and building up women internally is incredibly important and I'm grateful for you. Thank you to Janice for joining me today. It's great to hear about the foundation's deep listening approach to identify tangible community needs. Janice shared the importance of philanthropy of all kinds, both financial support and volunteerism, and how even small acts can lead to sustained impact over time. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.